Question 189, Part 1 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the States of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on the States of Life by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 189. Of the Entrance into Religious Life. In Ten Articles. Part 1. Articles 1 through 5. We must now consider the entrance into religious life. Under this head there are ten points of inquiry. First. Whether those who are not practiced in the observance of the commandments should enter religion second whether it is lawful for a person to be bound by vow to enter religion third whether those who are bound by vow to enter religion are bound to fulfill their vow fourth whether those who vow to enter religion are bound to remain there in perpetuity fifth whether children should be received into religion Sixth, whether one should be withheld from entering religion through deference to one's parents. Seventh, whether parish priests or archdeacons may enter religion. Eighth, whether one may pass from one religious order to another. Ninth, whether one ought to induce others to enter religion. Tenth, whether serious deliberation with one's relations and friends is requisite for entrance into religion. First article. Whether those who are not practiced in keeping the commandments should enter religion. Objection 1. It would seem that none should enter religion but those who are practiced in the observance of the commandments. For our Lord gave the counsel of perfection to the young man who said that he had kept the commandments from his youth. Now all religious orders originate from Christ. Therefore, it would seem that none should be allowed to enter religion, but those who are practiced in the observance of the commandments. Objection to. Further, Gregory says in his homily 15 on Ezekiel and his commentary on Job 22, No one comes suddenly to the summit but he must make a beginning of a good life in the smallest matters, so as to accomplish great things. Now the great things are the counsels, which pertain to the perfection of life, while the lesser things are the commandments, which belong to common righteousness. Therefore, it would seem that one ought not to enter religion for the purpose of keeping the counsels, unless one be already practiced in the observance of the precepts. Objection 3. Further, the religious state, like the holy orders, has a place of eminence in the church. Now as Gregory writes to the bishop Siagrius in his letter 106, order should be observed in ascending to orders, for he seeks a fall who aspires to mount to the summit by overpassing the steps. 
Translator's note. The rest of the quotation is from letter 53 to Bishop Virgil. For we are well aware that walls, when built, receive not the weight of the beams until the new fabric is rid of its moisture, lest if they should be burdened with weight before they are seasoned, they bring down the whole building, quoted in the canon, Sicut Neophytus. Therefore, it would seem that one should not enter religion unless one be practiced in the observance of the precepts. Objection 4. Further, a gloss on Psalm 130, verse 2, as a child that is weaned is towards his mother, says, First we are conceived in the womb of Mother Church by being taught the rudiments of faith. Then we are nourished, as it were, in her womb, by progressing in those same elements. Afterwards, we are brought forth to the light by being regenerated in baptism. Then the church bears us, as it were, in her hands, and feeds us with milk, when after baptism we are instructed in good works and are nourished with the milk of simple doctrine while we progress until having grown out of infancy we leave our mother's milk for a father's control that is to say we pass from simple doctrine by which we are taught the word made flesh to the word that was in the beginning with god afterwards it goes on to say for those who are just baptized on holy saturday are born in the hands of the church as it were, and fed with milk until Pentecost, during which time nothing arduous is prescribed, no fasts, no rising at midnight. Afterwards they are confirmed by the paraclete spirit, and being weaned, so to speak, begin to fast and keep other difficult observances. Many, like the heretics and schismatics, have perverted this order by being weaned before the time, Hence they have come to naught. Now this order is apparently perverted by those who enter religion, or induce others to enter religion, before they are practiced in the easier observance of the commandments. Therefore, they would seem to be heretics or schismatics. Objection 5. Further, one should proceed from that which precedes to that which follows after. Now the commandments precede the counsels because they are more universal. For the implication of the one by the other is not convertible, according to Aristotle's Categories 9. Since whoever keeps the counsels keeps the commandments, but the converse does not hold. Seeing, then, that the right order requires one to pass from that which comes first to that which comes after, it follows that one ought not to pass to the observance of the councils in religion without being first of all practiced in the observance of the commandments. On the contrary, Matthew the publican, who was not practiced in the observance of the commandments, was called by our Lord to the observance of the councils. For it is stated in Luke 5.28 that, Leaving all things he followed him, 
Therefore, it is not necessary for a person to be practiced in the observance of the commandments before passing to the perfection of the counsels. I answer that, as shown above in question 188, article 1, the religious state is a spiritual schooling for the attainment of the perfection of charity. This is accomplished through the removal of the obstacles to perfect charity by religious observances. And these obstacles are those things which attach man's affections to earthly things. Now the attachment of man's affections to earthly things is not only an obstacle to the perfection of charity, but sometimes leads to the loss of charity, when through turning inordinately to temporal goods, man turns away from the immutable good by sinning mortally. Hence it is evident that the observances of the religious state, while removing the obstacles to perfect charity, remove also the occasions of sin. For instance, it is clear that fasting, watching, obedience and the like, withdraw man from sins of gluttony and lust and all other manner of sins. Consequently, it is right that not only those who are practiced in the observance of the commandments should enter religion, in order to attain yet greater perfection, but also those who are not practiced, in order the more easily to avoid sin and attain to perfection. Reply to Objection 1 Jerome, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, 1920, says, The young man lies when he says, All these I have kept from my youth. For if he had fulfilled this commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, why did he go away sad when he heard, Go, sell all thou hast and give to the poor? But this means that he lied as to the perfect observance of this commandment. Hence Origen says, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, tract 8, that It is written in the Gospel according to the Hebrews, that when our Lord had said to him, Go sell all thou hast, the rich man began to scratch his head, and that our Lord said to him, How sayest thou, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, seeing that it is written in the law, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Behold, many of thy brethren, children of Abraham, are clothed in filth and die of hunger, whilst thy house is full of all manner of good things, and nothing whatever hath passed thence to them. And thus our Lord reproves him, saying, If thou wilt be perfect, go, etc. For it is impossible to fulfill the commandment which says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and to be rich, especially to have such great wealth. This also refers to the perfect fulfillment of this precept. On the other hand, it is true that he kept the commandments imperfectly and in a general way. For perfection consists chiefly in the observance of the precepts of charity as stated above in question 184, article 3. Wherefore, in order to show that the perfection of the counsels is useful both to the innocent and to sinners, 
our Lord called not only the innocent youth, but also the sinner Matthew. Yet Matthew obeyed his call, and the youth obeyed not, because sinners are converted to the religious life more easily than those who presume on their innocency. It is to the former that our Lord says, in Matthew 21:31, The publicans and the harlots shall go into the kingdom of God before you. Reply to Objection 2. The highest and the lowest place can be taken in three ways. First, in reference to the same state and the same man. And thus it is evident that no one comes to the summit suddenly, since every man that lives aright progresses during the whole course of his life so as to arrive at the summit. Secondly, in comparison with the various states. And thus he who desires to reach a higher state need not begin from a lower state. For instance, if a man wished to be a cleric, he need not first of all be practiced in the life of a layman. Thirdly, in comparison with different persons. And in this way it is clear that one man begins straight away not only from a higher state, but even from a higher degree of holiness than the highest degree to which another man attains throughout his whole life. Hence Gregory says, in his Dialogues 2.1, All are agreed that the boy Benedict began at a high degree of grace and perfection in his daily life. Reply to Objection 3 As stated above in Question 184, Article 6, the holy orders pre-require holiness, whereas the religious state is a school for the attainment of holiness. Hence the burden of orders should be laid on the walls when these are already seasoned with holiness, whereas the burden of religion seasons the walls, that is, men, by drawing out the damp of vice. Reply to Objection 4 it is manifest from the words of this gloss that it is chiefly a question of the order of doctrine, insofar as one has to pass from easy matter to that which is more difficult. Hence it is clear from what follows that the statement that certain heretics and schismatics have perverted this order refers to the order of doctrine. For it continues thus, But he says that he has kept these things, namely the aforesaid order, binding himself by an oath. Translator's note, referring to the last words of the verse, and taking retributio, which due renders reward, as meaning punishment. Thus I was humble, not only in other things, but also in knowledge, for I was humbly minded, because I was first of all fed with milk, which is the word made flesh, so that I grew up to partake of the bread of angels, namely the word that is in the beginning with God. The example which is given in proof of the newly baptized not being commanded to fast until Pentecost shows that no difficult things are to be laid on them as an obligation before the Holy Ghost inspires them inwardly to take upon themselves difficult things of their own choice. 
Hence, after Pentecost and the receiving of the Holy Ghost, the Church observes a fast. Now the Holy Ghost, according to Ambrose, according to his commentary on the Gospel of Luke one fifteen, is not confined to any particular age. He ceases not when men die. He is not excluded from the maternal womb. Gregory also, in a homily for Pentecost, his homily 30 on the Gospel says, He fills the boy harpist and makes him a psalmist. He fills the boy abstainer and makes him a wise judge. Confer Daniel 1, 8-17. And afterwards he adds, No time is needed to learn whatsoever he will, for he teaches the mind by the merest touch. Again it is written in Ecclesiastes 8.8. It is not in man's power to stop the spirit. And the Apostle admonishes us in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Extinguish not the spirit. And in Acts 7.51 it is said against certain persons, You always resist the Holy Ghost. Reply to Objection 5. There are certain chief precepts which are the ends, so to say, of the commandments and counsels. These are the precepts of charity, and the counsels are directed to them, not that these precepts cannot be observed without keeping the counsels, but that the keeping of the counsels conduces to the better observance of the precepts. The other precepts are secondary, and are directed to the precepts of charity in such a way that unless one observe them it is altogether impossible to keep the precepts of charity accordingly in the intention the perfect observance of the precepts of charity precedes the counsels and yet sometimes it follows them in a point of time for such is the order of the end in relation to things directed to the end but the observance in a general way of the precepts of charity together with the other precepts is compared to the counsels as the common to the proper because one can observe the precepts without observing the counsels but not vice versa hence the common observance of the precepts precedes the counsels in the order of nature but it does not follow that it precedes them in point of time for a thing is not in the genus before being in one of the species. But the observance of the precepts, apart from the counsels, is directed to the observance of the precepts together with the counsels, as an imperfect to a perfect species, even as the irrational to the rational animal. Now the perfect is naturally prior to the imperfect, since nature, as Boethius says, in On the Consolation of Philosophy 3.10, begins with perfect things. And yet, it is not necessary for the precepts first of all to be observed without the counsels, and afterwards with the counsels, just as it is not necessary for one to be an ass before being a man, or married before being a virgin. In like manner, it is not necessary for a person first of all to keep the commandments in the world before entering religion, 
especially as the worldly life does not dispose one to religious perfection, but is more an obstacle thereto. Second article, whether one ought to be bound by vow to enter religion. Objection 1. It would seem that one ought not to be bound by vow to enter religion. For in making his profession, a man is bound by the religious vow. Now before profession, a year of probation is allowed, according to the rule of Blessed Benedict, and according to the decree of Innocent the Fourth. Translator's note, the decretal non solum. Who moreover forbade any one to be bound to the religious life by profession before completing the year of probation. Therefore, it would seem that much less ought any one, while yet in the world, to be bound by vow to enter religion. Objection to. Further, Gregory says in his letter 15, Jews should be persuaded to be converted, not by compulsion, but of their own free will. Now one is compelled to fulfill what one has vowed. Therefore, no one should be bound by vow to enter religion. Objection 3. Further, no one should give another an occasion of falling. Wherefore it is written in Exodus 21, 33 and 34, If a man open a pit, and an ox or an ass fall into it, the owner of the pit shall pay the price of the beasts. Now through being bound by vow to enter religion, it often happens that people fall into despair and various sins. Therefore, it would seem that one ought not to be bound by vow to enter religion. On the contrary, it is written in Psalm 75, verse 12, Vow ye, and pay to the Lord your God. And a gloss of Augustine says that, Some vows concern the individual, such as vows of chastity, virginity, and the like. Consequently, Holy Scripture invites us to vow these things. But Holy Scripture invites us only to that which is better. Therefore, it is better to bind oneself by vow to enter religion. I answer that, as stated above in question 88, article 6, when we were treating of vows, one and the same work done in the fulfillment of a vow is more praiseworthy than if it be done apart from a vow, both because to vow is an act of religion, which has a certain preeminence among the virtues, and because a vow strengthens a man's will to do good. And just as sin is more grievous through proceeding from a will obstinate in evil, so a good work is the more praiseworthy through proceeding from a will confirmed in good by means of a vow. Therefore, it is in itself praiseworthy to bind oneself by vow to enter religion. Reply to Objection 1. The religious vow is twofold. One is the solemn vow, 
which makes a man a monk or a brother in some other religious order. This is called the profession, and such a vow should be preceded by a year's probation, as the objection proves. The other is the simple vow, which does not make a man a monk or a religious, but only binds him to enter religion, and such a vow need not be preceded by a year's probation. Reply to Objection 2 The words quoted from Gregory must be understood as referring to absolute violence. But the compulsion arising from the obligation of a vow is not absolute necessity, but a necessity of end, because after such a vow one cannot attain to the end of salvation unless one fulfill that vow. Such a necessity is not to be avoided. Indeed, as Augustine says in his letter 127, happy is the necessity that compels us to better things. Reply to Objection 3. The vow to enter religion is a strengthening of the will for better things, and consequently, considered in itself, instead of giving a man an occasion of falling, withdraws him from it. But if one who breaks a vow falls more grievously, this does not derogate from the goodness of the vow, as neither does it derogate from the goodness of baptism that some sin more grievously after being baptized. Third article. Whether one who is bound by a vow to enter religion is under an obligation of entering religion. Objection 1. It would seem that one who is bound by the vow to enter religion is not under an obligation of entering religion. For it is said in the Decretals, the canon Consaldus, Consaldus, a priest under pressure of sickness and emotional fervor, promised to become a monk. He did not, however, bind himself to a monastery or abbot, nor did he commit his promise to writing, but he renounced his benefice in the hands of a notary, and when he was restored to health, he refused to become a monk. And afterwards it is added, We adjudge, and by apostolic authority we command that the aforesaid priest be admitted to his benefice and sacred duties, and that he be allowed to retain them in peace. Now this would not be if he were bound to enter religion. Therefore, it would seem that one is not bound to keep one's vow of entering religion. Objection to. Further, no one is bound to do what is not in his power. Now it is not in a person's power to enter religion, since this depends on the consent of those whom he wishes to join. Therefore, it would seem that a man is not obliged to fulfill the vow by which he bound himself to enter religion. Objection 3. Further, a less useful vow cannot remit a more useful one. Now the fulfillment of a vow to enter religion might hinder the fulfillment of a vow to take up the cross in defense of the Holy Land, and the latter, apparently, is the more useful vow, since thereby a man obtains the forgiveness of his sins. 
Therefore, it would seem that the vow by which a man has bound himself to enter religion is not necessarily to be fulfilled. On the contrary, it is written in Ecclesiastes 5.3, If thou hast vowed anything to God, defer not to pay it, for an unfaithful and foolish promise displeaseth him. And a gloss on Psalm 75.12, Vow ye, and pay to the Lord your God, says, To vow depends on the will, but after the vow has been taken, the fulfillment is of obligation. I answer that, as stated above in question 88, article 1, when we were treating of vows, a vow is a promise made to God in matters concerning God. Now, as Gregory says in a letter to Boniface, if among men of good faith contracts are wont to be absolutely irrevocable, how much more shall the breaking of this promise given to God be deserving of punishment? Therefore, a man is under an obligation to fulfill what he has vowed, provided this be something pertaining to God. Now it is evident that entrance into religion pertains very much to God, since thereby man devotes himself entirely to the divine service as stated above in question 186, article 1. Hence it follows that he who binds himself to enter religion is under an obligation to enter religion according as he intends to bind himself by his vow, so that if he intend to bind himself absolutely, he is obliged to enter as soon as he can, through the cessation of a lawful impediment, whereas if he intend to bind himself to a certain fixed time, or under a certain fixed condition, he is bound to enter religion when the time comes or the condition is fulfilled. Reply to Objection 1. This priest had made not a solemn, but a simple vow. Hence he was not a monk in effect, so as to be bound by law to dwell in a monastery and renounce his cure. However, in the court of conscience, one ought to advise him to renounce all and enter religion. Hence the bishop of Grenoble, who had accepted the episcopate after vowing to enter religion, without having fulfilled his vow, is counseled that if he wished to heal his conscience, he should renounce the government of his see and pay his vows to the Most High. Confer the decretal extra. Reply to Objection 2. As stated above, in Question 88, Article 3, Second Reply, when we were treating of vows, he who has bound himself by vow to enter a certain religious order is bound to do what is in his power in order to be received in that order. And if he intend to bind himself simply to enter the religious life, if he be not admitted to one, he is bound to go to another. Whereas, if he intend to bind himself only to a particular order, he is bound only according to the measure of the obligation to which he has engaged himself. Reply to Objection 3 
The vow to enter religion being perpetual is greater than the vow of pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which is a temporal vow. And, as Alexander III says, in the canon Extra, he who exchanges a temporary service for the perpetual service of religion is in no way guilty of breaking his vow. Moreover, it may be reasonably stated that also by entrance into religion a man obtains remission of all his sins. For if by giving alms a man may forthwith satisfy for his sins, according to Daniel 4.24, Redeem thou thy sins with alms, much more does it suffice to satisfy for all his sins that a man devote himself wholly to the divine service by entering religion, for this surpasses all manner of satisfaction, even that of public penance, according to the Decretals, the chapter Admonere, just as a holocaust exceeds a sacrifice, as Gregory declares in his homily 20 on Ezekiel. Hence we read in the lives of the fathers that by entering religion one receives the same grace as by being baptized, and yet even if one were not thereby absolved from all debt of punishment, nevertheless the entrance into religion is more profitable than a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, as regards the advancement in good, which is preferable to absolution from punishment. Fourth article. Whether he who has vowed to enter religion is bound to remain in religion in perpetuity. Objection 1. It would seem that he who has vowed to enter religion is bound in perpetuity to remain in religion. For it is better not to enter religion than to leave after entering, according to Second Peter 2.21. It had been better for them not to have known the way of justice than after they have known it to turn back. And in Luke 9.62, no man putting his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. But he who bound himself by the vow to enter religion is under the obligation to enter, as stated above in Article 3. Therefore, he is also bound to remain for always. Objection to Further, Everyone is bound to avoid that which gives rise to scandal and is a bad example to others. Now by leaving after entering religion, a man gives a bad example and is an occasion of scandal to others who are thereby withdrawn from entering or incited to leave. Therefore, it seems that he who enters religion in order to fulfill a vow which he had previously taken is bound to remain evermore. Objection 3. Further, the vow to enter religion is accounted a perpetual vow. Wherefore, it is preferred to temporal vows, as stated above, in Article 3, Third Reply, and in Question 88, Article 12, First Reply. But this would not be so if a person after vowing to enter religion were to enter with the intention of leaving. It seems, therefore, that he who vows to enter religion is bound also to remain 
in perpetuity. On the contrary, the vow of religious profession, for the reason that it binds a man to remain in religion forevermore, has to be preceded by a year of probation, whereas this is not required before the simple vow whereby a man binds himself to enter religion. Therefore, it seems that he who vows to enter religion is not, for that reason, bound to remain there in perpetuity. I answer that, the obligation of a vow proceeds from the will, because to vow is an act of the will, according to Augustine. Translator's note, according to a gloss of Peter Lombard on Psalm 75.12. Consequently, the obligation of a vow extends as far as the will and intention of the person who takes the vow. Accordingly, if in vowing he intend to bind himself not only to enter religion, but also to remain there evermore, he is bound to remain in perpetuity. If, on the other hand, he intend to bind himself to enter religion for the purpose of trial, while retaining the freedom to remain or not remain, it is clear that he is not bound to remain. If, however, in vowing he thought merely of entering religion, without thinking of being free to leave, or of remaining in perpetuity, it would seem that he is bound to enter religion according to the form prescribed by common law, which is that those who enter should be given a year's probation. Wherefore, he is not bound to remain forever. Reply to Objection 1. It is better to enter religion with the purpose of making a trial than not to enter at all, because by so doing one disposes oneself to remain always. Nor is a person accounted to turn or to look back, save when he omits to do that which he engaged to do. Else, whoever does a good work for a time would be unfit for the kingdom of God unless he did it always, which is evidently false. Reply to Objection 2. A man who has entered religion gives neither scandal nor bad example by leaving, especially if he do so for a reasonable motive. And if others are scandalized, it will be passive scandal on their part, and not active scandal on the part of the person leaving, since in doing so he has done what was lawful and expedient on account of some reasonable motive, such as sickness, weakness, and the like. Reply to Objection 3. He who enters with the purpose of leaving forthwith does not seem to fulfill his vow, since this was not his intention in vowing. Hence he must change that purpose, at least so as to wish to try whether it is good for him to remain in religion, but he is not bound to remain forevermore. Fifth article, whether children should be received in religion. Objection 1. It would seem that children ought not to be received in religion. Because it is said in the Decretal Extra, 
no one should be tonsured unless he be of legal age and willing but children seemingly are not of legal age nor have they a will of their own not having perfect use of reason therefore it seems that they ought not to be received in religion objection to further the state of religion would seem to be a state of repentance wherefore religion is derived confer question eighty one article one from religare to bind or from re eligere to choose again as augustine says in on the city of god ten three but repentance does not become children therefore it seems that they should not enter religion objection three further the obligation of a vow is like that of an oath but children under the age of fourteen ought not to be bound by oath confer the decretals pueri and honestum therefore it would seem that neither should they be bound by vow objection for further it is seemingly unlawful to bind a person to an obligation that can be justly cancelled now if any persons of unripe age bind themselves to religion they can be withdrawn by their parents or guardians for it is written in the decretals the canon puella that if a maid under twelve years of age shall take the sacred veil of her own accord her parents or guardians if they choose can at once declare the deed null and void it is therefore unlawful for children especially of unripe age to be admitted or bound to religion on the contrary our lord said in matthew nineteen fourteen suffer the little children and forbid them not to come to me expounding these words origen says in his tract seven on his commentary on the gospel of matthew that the disciples of jesus before they have been taught the conditions of righteousness rebuke those who offer children and babes to christ but our lord urges his disciples to stoop to the service of children we must therefore take note of this lest deeming ourselves to excel in wisdom we despise the church's little ones as though we were great and forbid the children to come to jesus i answer that as stated above in article two first reply the religious vow is twofold one is the simple vow consisting in a mere promise made to god and proceeding from the interior deliberation of the mind such a vow derives its efficacy from the divine law nevertheless it may encounter a twofold obstacle first through lack of deliberation as in the case of the insane whose vows are not bounding confer the decretal extra the same applies to children who have not reached the required use of reason 
so as to be capable of guile, which use boys attain as a rule at about the age of fourteen, and girls at the age of twelve, this being what is called the age of puberty, although in some it comes earlier, and in others it is delayed, according to the various dispositions of nature. Secondly, the efficacy of a simple vow encounters an obstacle if the person who makes a vow to God is not his own master. For instance, if a slave, through having the use of reason, vows to enter religion, or even is ordained without the knowledge of his master. For his master can annul this, as stated in the Decretals, the chapter Cicervus. And since boys and girls under the age of puberty are naturally in their father's power as regards the disposal of their manner of life, their father may either cancel or approve their vow, if it please him to do so, as it is expressly said with regard to a woman in the book of Numbers, chapter 30, verse 4. Accordingly, if before reaching the age of puberty a child makes a simple vow, not yet having full use of reason, he is not bound in virtue of the vow. But if he has the use of reason before reaching the age of puberty, he is bound, so far as he is concerned, by his vow. Yet this obligation may be removed by his father's authority, under whose control he still remains, because the ordinance of the law whereby one man is subject to another considers what happens in the majority of cases. If, however, the child has passed the age of puberty, his vow cannot be annulled by the authority of his parents, though if he has not the full use of reason, he would not be bound in the sight of God. The other is the solemn vow, which makes a man a monk or a religious. Such a vow is subject to the ordinance of the church, on account of the solemnity attached to it. And since the church considers what happens in the majority of cases, a profession made before the age of puberty, however much the person who makes profession may have the use of reason, or be capable of guile, does not take effect so as to make him a religious. Confer the decretal extra, the chapter, Significatum Est. Nevertheless, although they cannot be professed before the age of puberty, they can, with the consent of their parents, be received into religion to be educated there. Thus it is related of John the Baptist in Luke one eighty that the child grew and was strengthened in spirit and was in the deserts. Hence, as Gregory states in his Dialogues 2.3, the Roman nobles began to give their sons to the blessed Benedict to be nurtured for Almighty God, and this is most fitting, according to Lamentations 3.27. It is good for a man when he has borne the yoke from his youth. It is for this reason that by common custom children are made to apply themselves to those duties or arts with which they are to pass their lives. Reply to Objection 1. The legal age for receiving the tonsure and taking the solemn vow of religion is the age of puberty, when a man is able to make use of his own will. 
but before the age of puberty it is possible to have reached the lawful age to receive the tonsure and be educated in a religious house reply to objection to the religious state is chiefly directed to the attainment of perfection as stated above in question 186 article 1 fourth reply and accordingly it is becoming to children who are easily drawn to it but as a consequence it is called a state of repentance inasmuch as occasions of sin are removed by religious observances as stated above in question 186 article 1 fourth reply reply to objection 3 even as children are not bound to take oaths as the canon states so are they not bound to take vows if however they bind themselves by vow or oath to do something they are bound in god's sight if they have the use of reason but they are not bound in the sight of the church before reaching the age of fourteen reply to objection four a woman who has not reached the age of puberty is not rebuked according to numbers thirty verse four for taking a vow without her parents consent but the vow can be made void by her parents hence it is evident that she does not sin in vowing but we are given to understand that she binds herself by vow so far as she may without prejudice to her parents authority End of question 189, part 1. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.